0: Happy Easter, everyone. Welcome to PKC. And my name is Ben, I'm one of the lead pastors here, and it's really exciting uh, to be with you as this new community forms and we celebrate Easter together. Uh, If you don't know me, um, I'm married to my wife, Nicole, who you might have seen play the keyboard, and we have four kids. And thinking about just all my kids, always my oldest sticks out to me, right? Because that's the transition into parenting. And Shabby, now he's a great kid. He's actually the one that's doing the slides, so just show him some grace. But um, when he was three, there's one moment that I will never forget. In our early twenties, you know, having him as our first kid, it was more like a crash course in parenting, if you will. And um, I remember buying this brand new TV for our family. I brought it home, I set it up in our bedroom, because you know when you have young kids, the only time that you're watching TV is when they're all asleep. And we enjoyed it for a couple days, and one day, I came home, less than a week of getting this TV. I come upstairs to my bedroom to change, and as I open the door, I see this little three-year-old smiling at me and saying to me, Daddy, I cleaned the TV for you. As I look at what he has in his hands, it's this huge bottle of Febreze that he just doused the whole TV TV with in one moment. And in utter shock, fighting back anger and panic in this moment, um, I realized that this TV was Dunzo and I tried to like call his mother, probably in a panic, Try to get him out of the room, Try to clean it up really quickly, but as soon as I turned it on, what happened was the image was totally distorted, and let's just say the TV didn't make it. That liquid totally destroyed the TV. It left it standing, not able to function, not useful to anybody, an object just sitting there in time. Just like the liquid, if you can prove that Easter didn't happen, Christianity is destroyed. It's rendered useless. It doesn't work for anybody. It unravels at the seams, not useful at all. Paul puts it like this in the latter half of the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15:14. He says, If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. Can't get more direct than that, can you? And here's the tension that we have to face this morning. In the resurrection of Jesus, if it's just a myth, if it's just a fairy tale that they told children back then, if Christianity isn't real, if the resurrection didn't happen, it ceases to exist. Christianity is left unfunctional. A religion not worth following or believing. But if it's true, if the resurrection is true, it changes everything. It changes everything in my life, it changes everything in your life. No matter who you are in the room this morning, And being in a room like this many times before on an Easter Sunday, growing up in church, growing up in a Christian family, being a pastor for many years now, there's always two people in a room like this. One is a person, and maybe that's you, who has come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Or two, there are those of you that are here that are skeptical, that have your doubts, you know, that have been drag- dragged here by maybe your spouse or a loved one or a family member because it's your ticket into getting t- into Grandma Doris's you know, family lunch later on today, right? And I say that because I'm not calling you out, okay? In this place, you know, we want you to feel welcome with all your doubts and all your skepticism. We believe and we hope that you feel like you belong here before you believe. I say this. Because I've been in your seat. I've been in your place. I know how you feel right now in this moment being dragged to church over and over again uh, by my wife in seasons of my life. Not having understood what the resurrection means, what it implies, what it means for our lives and how it changes everything. Maybe right now, like the disciples uh, in John 22, when they resp- responded, as Morgan read, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. They don't know what happened, and maybe you don't know either. Like my friend earlier this week, um, I talked to him. He's a non-Christian in Vancouver, and I was, you know, prepping this message, and I thought, hey, interesting social experience. I'm just going to ask this guy what he thinks I mean when I say the resurrection of Jesus. So I asked him, hey, buddy, we've been friends for a long time, hopefully this doesn't offend you, but I just want you to answer this question honestly. What do you think I mean when I say the resurrection of Jesus? And he's like, pause, he hesitated for a couple seconds. He's like, I'm not sure, Uh, let me think about that. He's like, maybe reliving a past experience, he said. Maybe, um, pause for a couple more seconds, coming back to life. And I was like, exactly. Exactly. When I say the resurrection of Jesus, when they talked about the resurrection of Jesus in the ancient world, the world that the story was first written in, they meant a human body that was dead coming back to life. And in that culture, everybody knew that that didn't happen, or more so, that it couldn't happen. Craig Bloomberg puts it like this, stories of resurrection are actually comparatively rare and can take various forms, including metaphors. But nowhere in ancient mythology or folklore do we ever find even the claim that an indisputably human individual who died within the living memory of others was raised bodily, much less seen in physical form on many different occasions by hundreds Who then boldly and widely spread the word about their experiences among their contemporaries? Never mind that it's hard to believe today. Back then it was just as unbelievable. But this is the beauty of the story that we just read and the invitation to all of us this morning. No matter who you are in this room, if you're a believer, if you're a skeptic or somewhere in between, when you think about the first scene of the story, Mary Magdalene, a woman who once was a disciple, who is, sorry, a disciple of Jesus, she comes to the tomb in John 21, and she says, uh, John says that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So here's the first question. Why was the stone removed? Why was the stone rolled away? If we're talking about the God of the universe, the person that created everything, the person that holds all molecules together, who in this story is going to soon appear out of nowhere to the disciples, as Morgan just read, right? In a locked room, through the walls. If that is God, why did the stone needed to be rolled away? In the next scene, we're gonna dive into. We, we see that his linen cloths are left behind. Think a mummy being wrapped. He just disappeared out of his clothes. Like air being left, let out of a balloon. They're just left behind, neatly tidy, folded up. So again, why does the stone need to be rolled away, right? Is it it isn't because Jesus needed to walk out, he was already out of that tomb. Could it be God in His infinite wisdom, who raised Jesus from the dead through His Holy Spirit, is inviting us, like He did the first disciples, to come and see, to come and investigate, to come and look for ourselves as we read these stories, to come and verify the truth before we trust in Him? And this is what I love about the Bible. This is what makes it so interesting. A lot of it contains historical eyewitness accounts of what took place back then, so much so that you can fact-check these stories. And you could go back, and you could go through all the different objections that have come up through history, and you can look at the evidence for yourself. You can look at the evidence that tries to dismiss and disprove that Easter ever happened. So to do that, I want to look at two popular objections together as we move through a couple of these scenes this morning. So the first scene, after Mary's announcement, one of the most famous disciples, Peter, okay, and the other disciple, John, the writer of this book, this is the way that he likes to refer to himself in the the stories. They run to the tomb, and John being the writer of the story, also being the younger, you know, more humble one of the two, he just writes in a quick jab at Peter, right? That he's slower. That John, the other disciple, got to the tomb before. And if you're competitive like me in the room, you know, you kind of like that little side note. But John says this in 20 verse 5. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen. This This is John lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as all the cloth that had been wrapped up around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. When it comes to the belief of the resurrection of Jesus, one of the main objections is simply that Jesus didn't really die. He wasn't dead. Many historians and scholars write off his death and the possibility of it completely. It never happened, they say. But here's the thing. If you ask any trusted first century historian nowadays, when considering the Roman Empire, okay, an empire that we know existed, and looking how they treated other criminals, right, it's impossible to conclude that Jesus just passed out or somehow he walked away from this crucifixion. That's the most improbable conclusion that you can come to. Tom Holland, not Zendaya's Tom Holland, but the historian who wrote the book Dominion back in 2019 says this, crucifixion was the worst death imaginable. A punishment designed for slaves to maximize the torture and humiliation. So foul was the carry on wreak of their disgrace, Holland explains that many felt tainted even by viewing a crucifixion. Meaning, simply, that Rome knew how to kill people. They knew how to get the job done. They couldn't mess this up. They've done this before. Because here's the evidence. This is what historians do, right? A philosopher and apologist, William Lane, uh, Lane Craig, says this. They evaluate the evidence. This is what historians do. And they say where it points, inferring the best explanation through inductive reasoning. So reading the historical account, which was a document shared within the early Christian church that we're reading right now, why add these details of the empty tomb, the linen cloths being left behind? Back then, anyone who wanted to check for themselves if this is true could have simply ran down to this tomb, this wasn't a secret place, and find out for themselves. They could have easily found for themselves the details that weren't true in this story, in this historical account. They could evaluate the evidence for themselves. But both John and other uh, gospel writers, they include the disbelief that Mary has in this moment. They include the disbelief that Peter and John, the leaders of this movement, have in this moment. They don't take this woman out of her word. They have to run down to the tomb and see it for themselves. Why paint them in a bad light, right? If you're making up a story, why paint them as doubters? Why add verse 9 that they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead? Especially if the second popular objection is true, right? The second popular objection is that the disciples stole the body. This objection, blasted by the very Jewish leaders who killed Jesus in this story, is still held by some people today. It points the finger right at these disciples, that they were part of this great conspiracy. But again, the central document to Christianity, the scriptures, include that they have no clue what happened. In the next scene, Mary herself says in her own words, John 20, 13, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. Again, looking at the evidence, here are a couple things to be considered. If the disciples stole the body, why would the criminals return back to the scene of the crime, right? Why would they go to the tomb like Mary is going in this moment to go through the Jewish burial rituals that couldn't be done because the burial of Jesus on Good Friday was rushed, and he was just put in this tomb by other people. Like in Jewish tradition, this burial ritual occurred in two stages. First, you carefully wrap the body with spices and linen. That's what Mary's about to go and do. And after you do this, you place the body on a shelf in the cave. The spices were there to counter the bad smells of the body decomposing. And after the body decomposed in this tradition, the second stage would be you would go in, you would collect the bones, fold them up reverently, and put them in a bone box, making room for the next family member or person to be buried in the same tomb. Like if Jesus didn't raise back to life, the bones in the tomb would still be enough in there, they'd be lying there, and they'd be enough to disprove that this ever happened. Nobody back then in this culture would have gone around speaking of a man that was raised from the dead. Archaeologists nowadays have found at least one first-century tomb just south of where Jesus' tomb was. And in this tomb, they found what, what must have been grave cloths wrapped up, just like they did, that they found, surrounding what's left of the bones that they found in this grave. And they say... Through looking through it, they say that the body must have been buried just before the devastating Jewish-Roman War of AD 66 to 70. And the secondary burial of the bones, the second stage never took place because of this war that happened. I can keep going on. I can keep pointing out you know, that the primary witness of this story was a woman. And if you knew anything about Jewish culture, Judaism, this was ridiculous. You would never fabricate a story like this and put a woman as the main witness to all this happening. But Jesus, who always flips the values and teaches you what the values of the kingdom actually are, decides to go to a woman first, decides to appear to a woman first, decides to make her the initiating person to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. Even the later church did not always maintain Jesus' countercultural values, his stance. They would hardly have chosen such an initial witness in an environment where this account would reinforce pagan prejudices against Christianity, as theologian Craig Kinnear says. But again, me continuing on, talking about how this movement swept across the Roman Empire, how it went from 12 disciples to over 33 million people in over just 350 years, right? Wouldn't convince you. Because as I heard, as it was said, one of humanity's worst kept secrets is that we don't choose the direction of our lives by carefully weighing their evidence meaning as humans, we don't always live our lives by rationality. We're not just left-brain creatures, meaning as humans, when it comes to some decisions in our lives, maybe you have experienced it yourself. There's, there's sometimes a moment, a mystical experience of sort. You can't explain it, but just deep down, you know in a moment, there's a moment of clarity, and you know that this is the right decision. This is not all logic. Back in September uh, 2021, some of you know, me and my wife, I've told this a bunch of times here to those of you that call PKC home. We moved back from Ontario to BC. And in that moment, that was not a rational decision. I was a pastor at a great church, about 1,500 people, one of many staff. Things were going good. After a year of pastoring there, we were seeing God move in amazing ways. We just launched Alpha. We were seeing new Christians come. We had a great house that we bought out there in the country, my wife's dream, not mine. I'm a city boy. Our kids were settling into school. Life was comfortable. It was great. And all of a sudden, September of 2021, me and my wife started having this conversation about moving home to be with my parents who are aging to take care of them. And none of the conversation made rational sense. I didn't have a job lined up, there was nothing. And in a moment of clarity, as I was looking out the window at the fireplace, I, I can remember it so clearly, This just this peace rushed over me. And I knew in that moment even though it didn't make rational sense that this was the right decision. Even as I'm describing this experience, maybe you've had something similar. Maybe for you, um, the example that's coming to mind is when you were sitting across the table from that girl who you might have dated maybe four, five, six times, but in a moment of clarity, you just had this experience as you were looking into her her eyes for the humpteenth time that she was the one, that you were gonna marry her. You couldn't explain it, you couldn't put it into words, but that you knew that she was gonna be your wife in that moment. Even though you didn't have a job to support you both, you didn't know how it was gonna happen, it made totally ill, it was totally illogical. You just know you were going to get married no matter what your parents said, no matter anything that the world threw at you in that moment, right? Or maybe for you, it's when you stumbled into that vocation that you thought you would have no interest in whatsoever. But as you started working that job, you saw that this passion all of a sudden came alive inside of you. And in that moment, that moment of clarity, you decided that this is what I'm called to do with my life. And in that moment, you decided that you were going to do whatever it takes to get the skills that you needed to do this job. Or maybe for some of you this morning, morning, that moment of clarity was when you realize that pursuing money, career, fame, sex, whatever, you name it, anything that the culture feeds you that tries to convince you that if you go after these things, that if you get these things, you will be satisfied. Actually, the experience that you have in this life pursuing those things is that you're, you're sitting there empty Lonely, trying to numb the pain in whatever way that's actually harming your life rather than leading you to flourish. And in a moment of clarity this past week, you decided, you know what? I'm going to go to church. I'm going to see if this God exists. Knowing that we humans are wired this way, God in his infinite wisdom allows this event, the resurrection, not to just be absolute objective truth, but he also creates it in a way that you can have a subjective experience of this truth in the person of Jesus, as we're going to see in a couple of moments. Which takes me to my favorite scene in the story. Peter and John leave, and in verse 11, we're left with Mary. Now Mary stood inside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body has been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. Although in the Bible, um, Angels appear multiple times. They're not always scary with wings. Most of the time, they're described with having white clothes, as I just read. Or sometimes in the Bible, um, they aren't recognizable. Some people mistake them for human beings. But these two angels that Mary comes across don't start reporting about what just happened in the tomb. They ask her... A question, why are you crying? And she answers in tears. They've taken my Lord away, and I don't know where she has they they put him. She is a woman experiencing deep pain and grief in this moment. Step into her shoes in this moment. Realize what she is feeling. That in Jesus, all her hope was placed. The other gospel writers tell us that um, Mary was set free from seven demons or seven evil spirits. Jesus set her free from that. Jesus healed her from all these infirmities that she was experiencing in this moment. Her life was given back to her by this man. All her hope, all her joy came from her interactions with this man, Jesus. And like any of us who have lost a loved one, we find her weeping because her hope is lost. Maybe you can relate to Mary this morning. Maybe you see yourself in Mary this morning, in a place where you have lost all hope, mourning that loss. You can fill in the blank of Mary's answer uh, to the angel with whatever you're going through right now. Maybe it is, they've taken my health. They've taken my job. They've taken my child. They've taken my husband. They've taken my wife. They've taken my dignity. They've taken my respect. They've taken my hope. Whatever it is that you had your hope in that is now removed from your life, in this moment, as my favorite theologian N.T. Wright says, the world's grief... Israel's grief is concentrated in Mary's grief. And the cure for her grief and the answer to ours is unrecognizable to her. She turns around in verse 14, and at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. You have to see, Mary in this moment, she represents the whole human race, doesn't she? Jesus' way of saving humanity did not fit her expectations or how she desired him to look like or act like. She didn't recognize him, it wasn't the same Jesus she knew before. Sure. Christ's body, his resurrection body in this moment was the same one that he had before, yet right now what she's seeing is his wholly transformed, perfected body. It's different. But this is what's happening. It's a common human experience. Let Paul's words in Romans 3.10 ring true. No one seeks for God. Meaning, not that no one seeks God, for a divine and transcendent experience, or that no one seeks for spirituality in general, but that no human being seeks the true God. We seek spirituality, but the human heart always wants a God who fits our desires, who fits our expectations, a God we can control, who doesn't challenge our self-assessments and our narratives. Whatever Mary's idea was of Jesus, At this moment, the Jesus that she's looking at did not fit those expectations and desires. A retired pastor, Tim Keller, puts it like this. The message of the Bible is that God never fits human categories and conceptions of what he should be. There'd be no hope in this moment for Mary and for us if Jesus just decides to wait for Mary to realize who he is. If God just decided to wait for us to move towards him, as I just read, that would never happen. But the good news of the gospel is that God moved first. As we celebrated on Good Friday, God sent his son, Jesus. He sent, he initiated, that Jesus would come and die for our sins. God initiated First, and that's exactly what Jesus does in this moment. He initiates with one word. He asks her a question. Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? See this not, and don't, don't understand this as a leader looking and asking to make someone submit to him. Think of it more as a counselor seeking insight as he asks these questions. But Mary still doesn't get it. She's oblivious, mistaking him for the gardener. But with one word, Jesus says, Mary, with one word, her eyes are open. She realizes who he is. And this is how Christian salvation works. It's never our attainment a prize that we receive after a long struggle with God as he waits for us. No, he comes to us and wakes us out of our sleep with intimate words by calling us by name or impression or a question, moving on our hearts in a moment that leads to a realization and a confession. Mary cries out, Rabboni, meaning teacher, one of the most intimate words that she could use to describe her relationship with Jesus. Jesus. She's in a relationship with the God of the universe, and she is so because it's all a gift of grace. Grace meaning she gets what she doesn't deserve. Grace meaning we get what we don't deserve. This is the beauty of the gospel. I know this to be true in my own life, and I say it with a deep conviction, because I myself found myself like Mary in a state of deep grief at the funeral of my friend, Arno in 2009. Some of you know my story. As I was sitting in that funeral, asking God questions, knowing that I was rebelling in my life, pursuing money, pursuing career, pursuing fame, pursuing all those things, not wanting anything to do with God in that moment, just questioning him, questioning why he would allow my friend Arno, who devoted his life to following Jesus, to die so young. I was mad at God in that moment. And as I was asking God the question, why, I didn't get any answers. But I got this impression. I got this thought. The Holy Spirit asked me a question. Ben, what are you doing with your life? That question cut deep in that moment because I knew I didn't have a good answer. The way that I was living my life in my early 20s was I was wasting my life I was wasting my life, and in that moment, I knew with that question, with that encounter, with God moving to me, moving towards me first, I needed to surrender my life to Jesus fully. It was a moment of clarity. Listen, that moment was a gift of grace, God pursuing me with his love. When I was intentionally sinning, sinning running away from him, I didn't go to that funeral looking for God, but God was looking for me at that funeral. And listen to me, friends, this morning, God is looking for you too. Through his Holy Spirit, the same spirit that had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, this subjective experience that he's talking about, coupled with this objective truth, is something that you can experience right here, right now, in the person of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is alluding to. It's kind of confusing at first glance in this dialogue, but he says says this in this end scene, okay? John 20, 17, Jesus said, "'Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father.'" go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. To my God and to your God. Many have taken this uh, do not hold on to me, the statement as a rebuke, as rejection. In fact, a famous painting by a medieval Italian painter in Padua, Italy by the name of Giotto di Boni, I don't know how to say it, but I'll throw it up for you really quickly. As you can see in this painting on the screen, Jesus' hand gesturing as a sign of dismissal, rejection. You can almost interpret it as if he didn't want anything to do with her in this moment. Mary pleading with her, wanting him to come close, Although this is a beautiful picture, it has, an, has had an unfortunate influence on the way that people interpret John 20 in this moment. See, Bondini and us can easily miss what Jesus is trying to communicate to the disciples then, Mary, and us in this moment. To fully understand what he is saying, what he is doing, what he's trying to initiate with Mary, you need to couple this scene with the last scene in verse 23, when Jesus just appears to these disciples who are shaking in fear, who are in this locked room, tucked away in this upper room, knowing that there's a missing body and that the authorities are going to be searching for someone to give them answers. And of course, they're going to come to these disciples, these followers of Jesus, maybe even torturing them, crucifying someone to get an answer. And as they're tucked away in this room in the dark, Jesus appears out of nowhere through the walls and says, Peace be with you. He says, I'm sending you as the Father has sent me. And then he does this amazing thing in verse 22. And with that, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is what's got me all week, okay? As I was prepping this message. Reading these two scenes together, you understand that the interaction in the words to Mary wasn't Jesus being harsh or what we see as a scene of rejection. But it's a moment where Jesus, after identifying his relationship with Mary in the most intimate way, by calling her by name, with one word, he's saying to her, I know you deeply. I know your past, present, and future. I know you in a deep way relationally. I know you've been grieving because you lost me. And now that you found me, you do not want to let me go, but I must go to my father. And this is what I imagine him saying, the words behind the words, not explicit to the text, but hear me. He's saying this, Mary, there is more. There is something better, there is a deeper intimacy that you can only experience when I go to the Father and sit at his right hand in heaven. And after I do that, I will send the Spirit. Then not just you, but everyone in the world will be able to have a personal intimacy with me, just like you want. And this is what hit me. Although I would love to go back in time to be these disciples, to have an interaction with Jesus face-to-face, to touch his hands, to touch his side, to look him in the eyes, what Jesus is saying in this moment is that what is better is the experience we have today through his Holy Spirit. A relationship with him That he is not just with us, but that he's also within us. That he's indwelling inside of us. Jesus was saying to Mary and saying to us, there is a way to know me that is deeper than knowing me face to face. There is a way that the Spirit comes when you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is Lord and Savior of the world, that the Spirit now comes and indwells in you in that moment. That when he breathes on the disciples, John would no doubt have Genesis 2 in mind, okay? This divine moment where the God of the universe breathes into Adam and makes the first human being. Echoing that, John 20, 23, uh, is the scene of Jesus breathing onto his disciples, and we see in the resurrection of Jesus, his arrival comes with a gift, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the breathing of new life, onto his followers resurrection life a life that transforms you from the inside out that you are remade into the image of God the image of Jesus 1 John uh, 4.13 says it like this this is the assurance that we can have with this gift by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit this is no impersonal spirit This is no ambiguous spirit, okay? This is God. This is Jesus himself indwelling in his disciples. This applies to anyone who follows him even today. Mary's yearnings, her desires are met in this moment in a way that she could never have imagined. And this is why... This subjective experience is so important because there's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God personally. There's a difference about knowing the evidence and the facts about God and experiencing him in your inner being at a soul level. The union of Christ and his spirit is what following Jesus is. It's not simply belief in Jesus, but the indwelling of the Son through the Spirit. In John seventeen three, knowing God in this way is described as everlasting life, eternal life, a life like Jesus that will never taste death. The resurrection presents a vision our hearts long for, a life beyond sickness and pain and sadness, It says to us, there's life beyond car accidents, lung disease, tumors. This life we live today is not the end. When you trust Jesus, death is not the end. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. That is the hope of the resurrection, which is an event but also who Jesus is now. And that reality demands a response. This invitation to a personal relationship is available to everyone in this room today. And my prayer for you this morning as we close in the next couple minutes that you like Mary, no matter who you are, if you're a skeptic or a believer, that you just stumbled into this place, you don't even know why you're here, that after these next couple moments, you would walk away, and like Mary Magdalene went to the disciples, you would say this, I have seen the Lord. I've experienced him in a deep way that I can never go back to doubt. I can never go back to my old life, but I need to pursue him and him alone. If you're thinking in this moment, then who me? This invitation possibly can't be for me. Consider Mary as we close. Despite her failures to recognize Jesus, she wanted an intimate relationship with him so passionately. This is a sign that she understood God's grace. Mary's life had been a ruin before Jesus, as I said, going mad, oppressed by demons, all this different pain that she was experiencing. And I'm sure in her heart, at one point, she probably thought the same thing. Who, me? I'm the last person that Jesus would call a child of God. I'm the last person that Jesus would move towards. But Jesus showed her in this moment, in his his interaction with her, that she could be called a child of God by grace alone. She was remade in this moment. And I've heard it said like this, to so the degree you understand you need your need for grace is the degree that faith explodes in your life in the form of love. And for the rest of us that follow Jesus, as we move into this moment of worship, only as we look at the resurrected Jesus can we find courage to live through our pain, questions, and struggles, Looking at the risen Messiah, we are brought to worship the one God who so loved his people that he became one of his people, took on true flesh and blood, including our pains, hunger, and weakness. He took it all the way to the grave. And then in the power of the Spirit of God, he rose from the dead to declare God's great victory over sin, death, and the devil. Looking at the risen Christ, we discover the depth of God's love, his solidarity with us and his compassionate power which makes all things new through Jesus. So let's move into a time of response.